Is everybody ready? Let's get rolling. This is The Big Show on 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. Big Show, Gordon Monson, Jake Scott, 97.5, 1280 The Zone. Welcome on back. Happy Monday to everybody out there listening. We'll catch up with Chris Mannix coming up here momentarily. We'll talk to him about the latest uh, goings-on with the NBA, as well as uh, his thoughts on uh, the Michael Jordan documentary in the last two episodes that we saw. I thought the Dennis Rodman episode was good, Gordon. I, I mean, this I'm, I'm a little jaded about the kind of Michael Jordan propaganda, I guess, but it is well done, and it, it is interesting, and I, I thought seeing Rodman where he was at in that process of his career was pretty interesting. This is what uh, is I find fascinating about this whole process is you have younger people who are watching this and learning about it for the first time, at least in detail. But for me, one of the joys of watching it is the the memories I have. And uh, this is stirring up my memories as I was covering all that back in the day. So it's it's kind of uh, I guess you can look at it and enjoy it from two different sides. All right, let's uh, let's talk to Chris about it. Let's get to our daily assist, Austin. It's time for your NBA fix. This is the Big Show Daily Assist, featuring all the latest news and insight on the association. Now joining the Big Show, senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, Chris Mannix, on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and the Zone Sports Network. Daily Assist brought to you by Lee's Heating and Air. Check them out online, leesheatac.com. Out to the Sprint special guest line we go. Sprint, they make it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit sprint.com for online services and local store availability from Sports Illustrated. He is the great Chris Mannix with us on The Big Show. Hi, Chris. How are you? What's going on, guys? You know, uh, we were just kind of talking about Dennis Rodman and the the Michael Jordan documentary. We, of course, asked you about it uh, last week. But how interesting to see uh, the the Dennis Rodman episode in specific because this jumped out to Gordon and me. Can you imagine, you know, uh, Dennis going to Phil and saying, I need a vacation and disappears on a four-day bender to to Las Vegas that was only supposed to be two? I mean, just wild. Yeah, I mean, you know, what what that underscored to me was that – Phil Jackson really was an incredible coach. I mean, you go into a season like that and the circumstances being what they are, where your GM says from the beginning, this is the coach's last year, a coach that's coming off two championships in a row. uh, What was it? Five in seven years or whatever the number was. And a GM says, you're not coming back. And during the course of the season, that GM, Jerry Krause, lobbed some grenades your way in the press as it was. I mean, even without the Rodman stuff, Phil did a remarkable job. But, you know, just kind of understanding the personality that Dennis Rodman was and understanding that the best thing for the health of that team would be to send Rodman away from it for a while, to, to party his brains off and, and, and to live it up. I mean, that's – you just like no, I don't know any other coach that can handle a situation like that. Not, you know, currently, ever. I mean, we've seen some great coaches throughout history do some remarkable things, but – you know whether it's Pat Riley or Greg Popovich or going all the way back to Red Auerbach, I just I just can't see a coach, you know, being as as skilled with personalities as Phil Jackson was. One of the things that stood out to me as I'm watching these episodes is 
how much different the game was back then than it is now. And and I don't know whether one is better or worse than the other one, but some of that physicality, Chris, it was pretty out of control at times. Well, yeah, you, you never see stuff like that in today's game. It's all been legislated out where, you know, you know, elite stars in the NBA are treated almost like quarterbacks in the NFL. Like, you can't put your hands on them uh, under any circumstances. And if you do, there's likely going to be a heavy fine or suspension uh, coming your way. It wasn't like that in the early 1990s where, you know, you could build an entire game plan around being physical and bullying and knocking down uh, Michael Jordan. So it's it just was a different game. Now, now, the NBA determined in the early aughts that, you know, this – you know, that wasn't good for business. You know, that, that having games that are like 86 to 80 or, you know, well under 100 points for each side, that just that just wasn't going to be good for television, good for growing the game. So they changed all those rules, took away hand-checking, decreased the physicality. And, look, you can't argue with the result. The league is this global phenomena that, that is growing popular, more popular by the year. But, uh, it, you know, it, it certainly gives you more respect for – the things that Michael Jordan had to do and players that era had to go through, you know, given how NBA NBA teams let defense body them in ways they never would today. Gordon and I were talking last week how this documentary is is probably going to be mostly stuff that we know, but there's going to be some interesting little tidbits sprinkled uh, throughout it. And one uh, from episode, I think it was three, where they were talking about the shot he hit over Craig Elo. I thought it was fascinating to hear Jordan say, man, they should have had Ron Harper guard me. And Ron Harper felt the same way. And of course, history is history. But those little minor details that, uh, that uh, come up, I find pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always the little things that a coach or a fan base will dwell on in the aftermath of, you know, memorable plays like that, whether it's, you know, defending the inbounds pass, you know, in that 92 was a Duke game against Kentucky where Christian Laker threw the ball the length of the floor. You know, there's, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, of little things you can examine and scrutinize and wish you could do differently, and I'm sure – you know, that's one of them. It seemed like Ron Harper certainly knew that he was a better fit defending Jordan. Uh, Jordan certainly knew that. But that whole, that whole sequence of events was just, you know, just a, a bad luck in a lot of ways. I mean, Jordan kind of wriggled free, and really no one was really guarding him in that moment. He caught up to him late. But that was an open shot that Jordan took in game five of that first round. And, um, you know, you, would Ron Harper have done something differently? Who knows? But uh, I, I know Ron Harper certainly thinks so. Going back to what you were talking about before with uh, with Phil Jackson and, and Rodman, one thing I did not know, and I don't know whether I just wasn't paying attention, Chris, I did not know that Michael Jordan went to Vegas to reel Dennis Rodman back to the team. I did not know that. But th- those are the kinds of things, th- those little moments where you see something that you did not know. And, and the little reveals, like uh, Michael Jordan, when Tex Winter came to him and said, there's no I in team, and he said, but there's an I in win. That, that, those are just little glimpses of the way Jordan thinks. And, and because he was the greatest ever in my mind, I, I think that's educational to any, anybody watching. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think there's – look, I, I've always said that if coaching superstars was easy, there'd be more than a handful of coaches that have won championships this century. I mean, you know, coaching superstars is incredibly difficult. It, it takes – a certain mindset and it takes a certain connectivity between the coach and and the player 
to to accomplish it. I mean, there's so many different machinations to winning a championship, but that's a big part of it. And look, Greg Popovich has mastered it. Eric Spolstra was excellent at it. Um, you know, and Phil Jackson, obviously, what he did with the Bulls and the Lakers might be just the the the, the supreme leader of it all. So, you know, it just it, it takes a special kind of coach and a coaching staff to be able to deal with that. And certainly give credit to the player. I mean, Jordan, you know, he got it, you know, eventually later on in their careers, Shaq and Kobe, they got it. I mean, they're, they're, there's a history that's filled with guys that have, have figured out at some point that to win championships, you have to evolve. And as we saw in that documentary last night, you know, Jordan figured it out in the early 1990s that to win championships, he not only had to involve his teammates, but he also had to get stronger. If, if, that, if bully ball was going to continue, he had to hit the weight room, gain that 15 pounds and, and, and sure enough, you know, that contributed to his ability to win a championship. Chris, as the country figures out a way to open things back up again, and we're obviously right at the beginning of that process as a country, we found out from some reporting today about uh, the NBA and how they may get back to operating in their practice facilities. And we found out some of the precautions that they may have to take. Your thoughts on what we learned today and where we are at in that process, if it is even possible. Yeah, look, I think it's very possible that in the next two weeks you will see practice facilities uh, open up in the states that have loosened their stay-at-home restrictions. I mean, I wrote this morning that that May 1st date that was floating, floating around over the weekend was, was something of a moving target, but it certainly was within a week or two weeks of that date they'd like to open up these facilities. And the way it was explained to me as I wrote my column that, you know, it's not a safety issue to keep the gyms closed. It's a safety issue if you keep the gyms and training centers closed and public gyms open up and players start going to them. In other words, you know, NBA teams, even if these, even if the coronavirus you know, pandemic is not completely resolved, which is not going to be anytime soon, uh, NBA teams, you know, they, they want to open up these facilities just to keep players away from like Equinox or you know, 24-hour fitness, because we know that if those types of gyms open up, players who are starved to work out will find their way there. So it's almost safer for the NBA and its players to have these facilities open up. Where I think it becomes problematic is the impact it has on the credibility and legitimacy of any upcoming playoff. I think if you have, you know, the Memphis Grizzlies able to work out for – the next three weeks in in their facility, and the L.A. Lakers can't. Uh, to me, I don't care how much of a ramp-up you have, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, the Grizzlies are going to have an advantage because, as we know, players aren't just, you know, not working out to the level they're used to. Some of them aren't doing anything. You know, I, I know all-star level players that are barely touching a basketball uh, right now or haven't in weeks or months. Jason Tatum, we saw on TV recently, said he hadn't picked up a ball in, in over a month. So, I think if you're going to have a postseason that you want to have end with a legitimate champion, you either have to have all players eligible and available to go into a facility or none at all. If you start to open up these things in piecemeal, that's fine. You can have some type of playoff, but I don't think that playoff can end with a quote-unquote NBA champion. It can be some other kind of champion. You could have an NCAA tournament type of of, of thing go on in the month of July. You can have all 30 teams eligible to play in it the month of July. But if you're talking about having, you know, the 74th NBA champion, I think if you start opening up these facilities in piecemeal, uh, I think that that really challenges the integrity of it, which has already been challenged and will be challenged enough with the format already. 
Man, I'll tell you, Chris, that is a strong, strong point. And given what you just said, I don't know how they can do it. I, I don't know how they can do it and make it equitable. No, it, it's impossible. And uh, I talked to three people within the league, you know, last night trying to kind of, you know, hash this out and, and, and hear some kind of ideas on it. And there really aren't any. I mean, you, you can't have players flying all over the country going to other places to work out. I mean, these guys have families. There are obviously concerns with, with spread of the virus if they start moving around. It's just not possible. Now, I, I think the NBA, in a way, should should kind of embrace it. Like, you know, have a a 32-team single elimination tournament and have the winner be crowned some other form of champion. Have a monetary prize maybe at the end of it for the players that, that win. I mean, look, even if, it's, if it sounds goofy on the surface, players are still going to play because they want to get paid. Networks are still going to broadcast it because, I mean, they broadcast anything. They put that awful horse game on TV a little while back, and so they'll put anything on there, right, and that's content. And media is going to cover it because, as a member of the media, we don't have anything to cover right now. So, I think you kind of, you know, kind of fly into the teeth of it and say, we're going to do something unique. We're going to do something different. We're going to give you a postseason, but we're going to say this year there is no NBA champion. There will be a vacant title for the 2019-20 season. Chris Mannix with us from Sports Illustrated, 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Kind of on that note, Chris, um, you know, the the revenue coming in, as Adam Silver said, uh, what was that, a couple of weeks ago, is at zero. So anything would be more than nothing. But how would it be worth it if they could produce a TV-owned product, or is the loss of the gate so much that it wouldn't maybe would not even be worth it? No, it would be worth it. And, look, I don't buy the whole, like, we have this social and civic responsibility to come back. I mean, I mean, come on. Like, everybody's a capitalist in this situation. Everybody's doing it for, for the bottom dollar more than they're doing it for anything else. The, the issue is, from what I understand it, and I wrote about this a little bit back, um, look, the revenue's not almost zero. I mean, TV money is still coming in. Like, TV networks are not not paying the NBA because they don't have those force majeure clauses. If they do, they're not going to exercise it because they want to maintain a strong relationship with the NBA when the contracts come up in, in a few years. Uh, what would have to happen afterwards is that the NBA in next season, if the year was canceled, is the NBA have to do something they call make goods, which is effectively completely changing the schedule to give Turner maybe some more games, to give ESPN maybe some more games, that would have a trickle-down effect to the regional networks as well. It would just wreak havoc with the scheduling and how they, they, they divvy it up among the networks in the 2020-2021 season. So, you know, they're not losing money necessarily, but they want to avoid that type of scenario next season. Um, and, by, and to avoid that, they just have to put these games on uh, in the summertime, and it doesn't matter if they're fans in attendance. So, yeah, I think for the benefit of – of everyone, um, you know, playing these games in some sort of way in the summer uh, makes a lot of sense. So is that, Chris, based on what you know, and I know you're keeping up to date with all the information that's coming out, you're reading all this stuff. What, what does Chris Mannix think is the most likely scenario? If you were a betting man and you said, okay, I'm going to put all my chips on this square, which one are you going with? You know, the, the needle is starting to move enough in the country that I'd probably put my money on the on the game coming back in some form in some sort of postseason in July. 
And that means in the month of June, they start their ramp up, which is going to be a three to four week type of training camp. You know, maybe they try to squeeze in a couple of regular season games. I don't, I don't know, but I do think we see some form of postseason in the month of July. I think, look, a lot of this is going to be predicated on what we see coming out of Georgia and Oklahoma over the next couple of weeks. These are states that have opened up, and these are two states that also have NBA teams. Um, they're states that are saying, you know, we're open for business on a limited level. If they're able to do it safely and we don't see a spike in infection rates and other states start to follow suit, which I'm sure they will, uh, then I can see a lot more momentum for getting the game back. But I think based on what we know about where the country is trending right now and, and the signs we're getting from the NBA about opening these facilities, um, I think that's, the, that's where I put my money on. Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated is with us right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. And I want to ask you about this, Chris, because you're <clears throat> excuse me, there in Boston in the Northeast where, you know, dealing with this has, has certainly been very serious. You know, is, is there a significant chance that the fall is going to be affected as well when it comes to the NBA? Because it seems like in some of these hard-hit areas, that is certainly no guarantee that everything is just going to get back to normal in the summertime, right? Well, no. It, look, it sure sounds like it, and I base that only on what I hear from experts like Dr. Fauci and, and others that are in the field that have consistently said it's more likely than not that the coronavirus comes back in in the fall. And and look, it's just impossible to predict what we're what we're going to do, what the NBA is going to do at that point. I mean, how severe is the outbreak in the fall? Do they have not just testing, and I'm sure testing, or at least I hope testing, will be at a different level come September, October but also are the therapeutics that are out there that, that make this you know, far more easier for people that are infected to handle, that make it more manageable uh, for people. So I think there's just a lot of variables that we just can't account for right now, progress that we need to see made before you know, we get back to normal. All we know is that experts are telling us that this will be back in the fall, and where we're at as a country I think will determine you know, just how, how, how open the NBA is for business. Yeah, I agree with that. And when you look at the sports calendar now, a lot of stuff has been shoved to the fall. You know, all kinds of events in various sports. It seems like that calendar is really filling up, and you wonder what's going to happen if there is a second wave, and and and, and then what? Who who's going to decide what at that point? I, I just, <laughs> I'm just waiting to see, Chris, because I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, look, you, you've got tennis tournaments, all the major golf tournaments, at least some of them, um, in a, you know, horse racing, in addition to the major sports, they're trying to find their way back. It, like, everyone's kind of putting their chips in this fall, it'll be okay basket. Uh, granted, they don't have much of a choice at this point because the spring and early parts of the summer look completely unfeasible for, for team sports. But uh, I think everybody's kind of just crossing their fingers and hoping that we get – some kind of reprieve in the fall, or at least that the advancements in testing and therapeutics and, and all the other treatments are significant enough that even if there is another outbreak, it, it doesn't result in a complete shutdown, which is the position that we're in right now. You're right, Chris. We all have our fingers crossed, that's for sure, and sometimes it feels like that's about all we can do. But we certainly appreciate you jumping on with us and keeping us up to date. You got it, guys. Thanks, Chris. Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated, your NBA Daily Assist, each and every Monday right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Jake, what do you think that's going to look like? Do you think it's going to be all or nothing? For the NBA, no, I don't. In, in the fall. I mean, when 
I wonder if if the NBA gets going again, will everything pick up from there, and or or all these events that have been shoved off to the fall calendar? I, I wonder if if some of them start up, if everything will start up, or if nothing starts up, then everything's going to be washed out. I think college sports have a more challenging time of it because of the government's involvement, for one thing. And second of all, I mean, yeah, if you can't even safely open up schools for students, how could you justify having a college season? So I think yes. that, that murkies the water for, for colleges a little bit. But, you know, with these pro leagues, you know, these are private organizations that, that have the ability to dictate their own flexibility. So, you know, if you get creative and figure out a way to to negotiate around circumstance, I would bet more on pro leagues, uh, you know, ability to do that. And certainly the NBA is, has shown a capability to think outside the box in the in the past. Mm-hmm. So I would I would give them, you know, give give them an opportunity certainly to do that. But what, what Chris brings up is, I think, a really good point. You know, the more we learn and, you know, learn about treatments and, and best therapy to give people who have uh, who get sick and, and the best way to. Um, you know, save lives with treatments, right? I mean, as we get more and more capability, I think our ability to do more and more things uh, becomes greater and greater and greater. And I think, you know, this first step, we figured out that our, our medical system wasn't overwhelmed by the first wave, and that's a really great thing. And so now, okay, how do we, you know, get better at it and get more flexible and get stuff done in spite of the obstacle, right? Yeah, it's almost as though when you look at it right now, all you can see is what's right in front of you, right? I mean, the, you, and so it it seems like it will always be like this. But you bring up a good point that as we learn more, as advancements are made, uh, people are hopeful that those advancements will be made, that more knowledge will be gathered, that there will be some uh, some viable solutions as we move on through this process. But right now, all we can see is what's in front of us, and sometimes you can get a little discouraged with that. Right, right. So, you know, stay optimistic, and I like how the NBA is handling this. Chris brought up a good point, point. you and I touched on it earlier today, about, you know, competitive balance, and some teams can open up their practice facilities and other teams can't, so how do you negotiate that? And and he's right about one thing. There's been some momentum in the country to, to figure out how to get things as normal as they possibly can be, and the NBA, I think, can be a leader in that, but uh, that's no reason to rush people back to arenas when it's not safe. So how do you negotiate, you know, how do you negotiate those waters and still figure out a way to salvage the season if that's possible? And the first step in that is opening up facilities so players and staff can figure out a way to get the job done. That's step number one, and we found out a little more info about that today. And maybe if step number one goes well, we can figure out how to get on to step two. Yeah, yeah, that, and that is step one. You got to be able to get your players to a point where they can actually play, and that—that's that, almost uh, unbelievable for for our listeners to hear what Chris said. That he knows of players, NBA players, who haven't touched a basketball in two months. I believe it. I or believe it. Uh, they're about maybe not uh, what seven weeks or whatever it's been. I mean, that, that's hard to believe. It, but if it is the case, then how in the world is that player going to be able to recapture what he is, what he does? Well, if somebody had to shelter in place in midtown Manhattan, Gordon, how are they supposed to do anything with a basketball? <laughs> that's just, that's, it's true. But you, you, you would think that these guys 
would have access to something, you know? But even if they had access, what what's their motivation? Right. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answers to those questions, but it's just hard to imagine. Name me a player, Jake. Name me a, a player who is typically in good shape. Me? Let's see here. Mel Turpin. <laughs> Dinner Bell Mel? No. Give me the name of a current player. Patrick Beverly. Can you imagine Patrick Beverly just sitting around with a with a beer belly, you know, just doing nothing? Yes. <laughs> They're all going to look like Ray, aren't they, Jake? Ray, Ray, Ray the, the buffet. buffet. Yeah, we're going to see a few buffets come back. Holy cow! That would that would be shocking. It's going to be like a, a beer league. <laughs> be awesome. <laughs> all right, guys. Guys going in short uh, shifts, kind of like hockey. You know, it's just. Change all your your uh, twenty timeouts a game. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. All right, let's get out to the zone phone. Joining us now from Wasatch Medical Clinic, he is Andrew Reinhardt, and we were just talking about it, Andrew. And we've talked about it with you before. You know, in these kind of trying times, we're all going to have to negotiate how to, you know, do things safely and keep going. And that goes for you know people battling ED. And there's a treatment still out there. Yeah, there is a treatment still out there. We're still open, helping guys with ED every day. Uh, We're taking temperatures at the door, um, plus a whole host of things we're doing differently. We've kind of almost eliminated our waiting room. So most medical offices have a waiting room. You kind of go straight into a room now. Uh, We're seeing a lot of guys come in and take advantage of our technology, which is FDA cleared, by the way, to do one thing, and that is open up and regrow blood vessels. Think of it kind of like a plumbing issue. Um, as a man ages, and maybe this is thanks to the American diet and lifestyle that, that we're all, we all have, uh, blood vessels shrivel up and die. They kind of become clogged. That's part of what causes ED. Uh, we reverse that. We attack the root cause of the problem, which is blood flow and the blood vessels. That means that we restore the normal function. So when things, you know, used to work well in the bedroom, when you didn't have to think about it, that's what we can get you back to. And by far, the best part is there's never been a side effect reported. I've seen thousands of guys go through this. Zero side effects, not 5 or 10% or maybe there's few. It is zero side effects from our treatment and normal, natural spontaneity in the bedroom. Get back to normal and no side effects. I got to imagine that's music to a lot of guys' ears. It really is, especially a guy taking the pill, noticing the side effects get worse and worse. The more he has to take and the worse his ED gets, and, you know, that's kind of a Band-Aid, uh, you know, on a bullet wound. It, 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 it really can stop things maybe temporarily at best. This is this is the root cause of the problem. 801-901-8000 is the number to call. 801-901-8000. Come in, see a doctor, find out if this works for you, right? Yeah, so much for free. Uh, an analysis of you by the doctor, your medical history, why you have ED, that's a, a question everybody has. Why Why is this happening to me? He'll be able to tell you. Um, maybe it's a result of some other medication you've been taking. Uh, and we can pinpoint that, by the way. We'll do a blood flow ultrasound. We're going to give you a special gift that produces instant results in the bedroom. Whether you do the treatments or not, all of that is free. 801 Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. That's our friend Andrew Reinhardt from Wasatch Medical Clinic. 801-901-8000. We'll have more next, 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. 
Show Gordon Monson, Jake Scott, 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Welcome on back. Gordon, we talked to Mannix about the uh, process of possibly getting the NBA to conclude its season, and we, we compared it to college sports. Uh, Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby, uh, Bowlesby made some interesting comments to the athletic Seth Davis. Uh, curious to what you think about this. Um, Bob says, quote, I actually think we have a chance to start on time. Speaking of college football, whether or not we can get the season done is another matter. When flu season starts again in November and December, you could see that ship sink in a hurry. One of the models we're looking at is a split season where some games happen in the fall and some happen in the spring, unquote. Thoughts? That's that's a thought I hadn't really uh, hadn't really crossed my mind. Uh, how are you going to do that? Well, I mean, you would be facing the same situation that you were faced that we were just talking about with the NBA, because if you if you split your season and you have to take a month and a half hiatus or something, how are you going to keep those guys in shape to be able to play? Well, and it, that would be something that's hard to plan on, don't you think? Like. You know, so you start the season in September. Who's to say that flu season doesn't start early? You know, right? Uh-huh. Or, or even what if flu season didn't come at all, and you get to that point in October where you're like, well, it hasn't flared back up again. So should we keep going? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I saw that, that's the first thing I thought. Like, can you can you make concrete plans for that? Well, if you've gotten off to a horrible start, you're you're like, okay, we need to shut this down for a while, right? You get <laughs> off to a good start and say, hey, no, keep no, it going. No. <laughs> I not. don't. And, and then, like, think about the spring. I mean, the, the, the current flare-up that we're dealing with in this country, um, you, you know, we started dealing with it in March. But does it start again in February? Does it start again in January? Does it start again in May? Does it start again at all? I mean— Okay, uh, forgive my ignorance on this, but when does flu season generally start? When the weather starts getting cold. Okay, so are we talking about October? Are we talking about November? See, that's the problem. It probably depends on where you live. It, you know, there, there's so many factors that go into it. How would you possibly plan something like that? A quick Google search says it's typically between... Uh uh, fall, f- peak in mid to late winter is when it peaks December and February. It usually lasts about 13 weeks, however, whenever it starts. So it usually ends by April, but sometimes can linger into May. And will the behavior of this particular virus be similar to the flu? I, I, when he's, are things? When he says flu season, though, they've always played through flu season, no? Right. And that, we've got a vaccine for that flu. Kind of. Yeah, ish. The different strains change year to year, but so I I don't know how you plan something like that. But but at the same time, Gordon, uh, you know what do you do? There there might never be a vaccine for this thing. Yeah. So I mean, peop- the, is college football fr- just going to disappear? And then you know maybe ten years down the road when somebody goes, aha, I found a vaccine. Then like, okay, all right, college football can start again. Get those no, balls back but, out. But one thing's for sure. You can't start the season and then stop it and then start it again, can you? Well, that's exactly what the NBA is trying to do. Well, I know, but 
to plan to do it that way? That would be the hard part. Because if you're going to start, like you said, yeah, how are you going to know? And if you stop the season, how are you going to – you're stopping it for a reason, right? And so how are you going to keep those guys in fit uh, fighting condition to be able to get back out there again? and, And how long is long enough to shut it down? If if there's a second wave, I, I I just think that that would be impossible to predict when you could start it up again. It, right? Crazy. It's just like all the things you just said. We're repeating ourselves, but it's because we don't know. But we also don't know how the country is going to um, handle it going forward and what the policy is going to be. Like uh, f- just for example, I think it is Sweden, right? Where they're the way they've dealt with this whole thing all the way along is is just shut everybody who's vulnerable up and quarantine them and then everybody else just lives their lives so is that is that the the direction this country is going we don't know right well that would be a hard i i think i mentioned to you before i was reading somewhere it says like half the country has some underlying medical condition so if that's the case how are you gonna are are you gonna you gonna what you word did you use shut up (laughs) You're going to shut down half half the people in America? I don't know. I'm not advocating for a policy, Gordon. I'm just saying that, that we don't know. Is that the direction this country t- takes? Maybe. I, I don't See, everybody is sort of guessing here because we don't have enough information yet. I saw a story that said that uh, Governor Cuomo in New York, he sees baseball games being played at Yankee Stadium and City Field there without fans. And that obviously that's not a new idea, but this is coming from a governor who's on the front lines fighting for his state. Well, I, I mean, you hope he's making those comments with some sort of, you know, information forming that opinion. But I don't know. I don't think anybody actually knows. Yeah. But we're yeah. going to have to formulate some sort of uh, societal plan that sports is going to have to fit into. Because, well, how, are you gonna, how are you going to make plans when you don't know? Well, I'm not sure, but but shutting down the country for the next year, I don't think is is going to be an option. So you got to figure something out. Yeah, but we're talking about a situation where you're you're either inviting thousands and thousands of people to participate in person, or you're not. That's a little different than most businesses, isn't it? Or maybe it's not. I don't know. You're whether you're if you're a retailer, you're inviting a whole bunch of people into your place. You're, uh, you know, I mean, it just seems like in sports it's intensified because you're you want people to come together and be in the same place at the same time, and that seems counter to everything we're being told is important to defeat this thing, unless you do what you just said that Sweden is doing, and that I don't know how realistic that would be because so many people seem vulnerable to this particular virus. Well, it's realistic for them because they're doing it. But, I mean, you know, we think of, well, it's easy just not to congregate in groups, but, uh, you, you know, one of my best friends works um, with the, in the trade show industry uh, where, where his company manufactures and sells equipment that folks use at conventions. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's all sorts of industries out there that depend on, you know, gatherings of some sort. So how do you how do you do that? I mean, do those companies just have to stay dark until there's a vaccine? You know, so this is all stuff that we have to figure out. It's not just sports that's affected by it. 
You know, does everybody in that particular industry just have to find a new job until uh, until it's safe to have conventions again? And you talk about stopping the season and starting it back up again. <laughs> that that what you just described there is every bit as complex. Well, if not more so, right? Yeah. I mean, stuff like that is is just crazy. I mean, look at um, uh, look at uh, can the convention industry and its impact on Salt Lake's economy. You know, where did those tax dollars come from? I mean, it, it, it trickles down to everything, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Las Vegas is the, the ultimate example, right? And, and maybe that's why their local city government has been at the forefront chomping at the bit to get back to normal. But yeah. how much uh, has their infrastructure as a community lost because, frankly, the convention industry— let's forget about gambling for a second because people don't have— sympathy for the degenerate gamblers out there but let's think about the amount of money that the state of nevada and the city of las vegas brings in based on conventions alone i mean it's it's in the billions so all right jake so what's your opinion what do you think based on what you know right now what should happen i don't know that's impossible to say gordon but i i do say this i mean it we don't i don't want to go down this rabbit hole too deeply but it it would be devastating to continue as we are right now uh, for much longer. And I think that's part of the reason you're seeing momentum turn a little bit to figure out how to operate safely and, I guess, you know, mitigate the risk as much as possible. But unfortunately, eliminating the risk is not possible. So hopefully we elected the right people to help guide us through it because that's where this is going to come from as the politicians, whether you like it or not. Because there is pressure to keep people healthy and safe, and there is pressure to get, get the economy going again. Right, and and there's suffering, unfortunately, on either side. So how do you how do you balance, and how do you uh, you know mitigate, to use a popular term, the damage on either side? Right, and again, I hope there's some really smart people who are currently trying to figure that out because there's a lot of lives that depend on it. Indeed. There's no easy answer, but I, I still have a hard time thinking of people as being dispensable. On either side, right? Hence the problem. <laughs> we're, we're right back to where we started. Yeah, we, got, we didn't solve we are, the world's this issues. Is, Gordon, come on. But this is what everybody is talking about. Everybody at every dinner table in America, they're, they're rolling around with the same stuff trying to figure out how where's the answer the answer is it with the scientists the answer is with the the people who come up with the medication those who are researching this that, that's where the answer is well and, well i gotta uh, just to add to that though i think the answer is on a lot of folks that are risking their health currently to keep food on people's tables my my grandmother lives in a rural part of virginia as you know and their um cases of coronavirus last week went up 300 percent because of one chicken plant wow and so they've they've closed down that chicken plant over the weekend while they clean things but what happens when the whole industry gets the pressure that well you need to shut down every chicken plant and then food isn't delivered to grocery stores and then prices go up and then people go hungry. I mean, you know, we can go down this road like, you know, what we negotiate with people's safety depending on the necessity of what they're doing. We do that with doctors every day. So, I mean, it's this this is tough. This, This is tough stuff, Gordon. When you're solving something on one side, you're damaging something on the other. Right. And it's like a. And the consequences almost, all suck. 
Yeah, it's almost like a uh, some sort of seesaw that has like eight different planks on it, and you move one in one direction, and there's a there's a uh, a reaction on the other side. Only there, it's not just one or two things; it's a whole bunch of things. It's something that you point in every direction, yep. and it's someone being affected. Wow, yep. Jake, this is really this is really the story of our lifetime. Uh, I, I, I can't, th- you know, short of a world war, I, I can't think of anything that matches this. Yeah, well, we certainly haven't tackled anything like it as a society uh, in, in many, many generations. So there's no real blueprint. So we're just figuring it out, right? Yep. And hopefully, you know, by the end of the show, you and I will have gotten to the bottom of it. And, uh, <laughs> and we'll uh, contact the White House. And done and done. Moving on. All right. All right. Uh, we better hurry up. So if any of our listeners out there have an idea, please pass it along. We're all ears. Not Sportsport next. Adam Keefe at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. It is the big show. Gordon Monson, Jake Scott, 97.5 and 1280 of the zone. Check this out. And now your Not Sports Report on 97.5, 1280 the zone and the zone sports network. Big Show, Gordon Monson, Jake Scott, 97.5, 1280 The Zone. It's time to get a winner for the Chevy Strong play of the game. Be caller 12 right now at 855-340-ZONE and correctly identify the Chevy Strong play of the game as announced by DJ and PK this morning at 8.50 and you'll win a zone prize pack. It's the Chevy Strong play of the game brought to you by your Rocky Mountain Chevy dealers right here on the Zone Sports Network. We have Adam Keefe coming up at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. But until then, it's time for the Not Sports Report. Brought to you by the LHM Used Car Supermarket. Over 1,000 used vehicles and inventory. Shop online at lhmusedcars.com. Gordon, where are we going today? We're going to Australia. But before we do, let me ask you a question, both you guys. Are, do you have any twins in your family line? No, not for me. My, uh, my wife has two sisters who are twins. Okay. Austin, any twins? Uh, my wife has uh, twin brothers. Really? So, can you imagine what that? I, I want you, I want you guys to put yourself in in the shoes of a woman who's pregnant with twins. Because that's oh, thank you. so easy for me to empathize with. Sure. <laughs> how would you? How would you handle that? How do you think that would be? How do you imagine that being? Uh, hell for everyone around me. Difficult? What do you mean, how, how would I triplets? imagine that being? Can you imagine having triplets? No. But on both sides of the equation. Because you got if you got two or three human beings growing inside you, and then you give birth to two or three human beings, and then you have to take responsibility of those two or three human beings, that's a lot. That is a lot, correct. Now, why am I bringing this up, you're asking yourself? I am. This is why. A Neapolitan Mastiff named Shadow in Australia just gave birth to 21 puppies. 21 puppies. Now, that is a record for Australia. I have no idea what the world record is. Nor do I even want to think about that. But this dog had 21 puppies. Apparently, 
it was rather large, <laughs> and it, it gave birth to one or two, and then the owner of the dog thought, okay, there's there's something going on here. So they took him into the, the vet, and that's where they, the dog delivered the rest of them. But it took a team of 10 vets to deliver all these puppies. 10 vets had to assist in the uh, removal of the of the other 18 puppies. I mean, but good news is the dog's name is Shadow. It is now recovering at home with, uh, with the owners and the pups. 21, Jake. And somewhere, some aristocratic lady named Corello DeVille is designing a coat. <laughs> no. Not no. funny. No, Jake. Apologize right now. Horrendous behavior by you. 21 puppies. <laughs> How many puppies you... were in that movie? Not the 100, not 101 total, but remember the one litter had... 15 puppies! Is that what it was? Well, that's a whole lot of dog. Yeah, remember then it was 14, but then he rubbed one back to life. Ah, yeah, that's right. That's right, 15. Man, I think we all should uh, hoist a toast to Shadow. 21 pups. Woof. That's a lot. I want proof. May they make a vine coat. May it be warm. stop it. (laughs) Yes, Jake. I'm just just referring to a, a popular children's movie. Yeah, popular in the 20s. Whenever that thing ma- came out, can you imagine if uh, if if we had been doing our uh, our happy hour by Zoom the other day and PK had held up twenty one puppies? No. All right, let's get out to the zone phone. Joining us now, our good friend Andrew Reinhardt from Wasatch Medical Clinic, still helping our listeners with their love lives. What's going on, Andrew? Yeah, that's right. We are still helping guys with ED. Uh, We're taking everybody's temperature at the door, and we've put in place a lot of precautions to make sure everybody is safe and healthy. And a lot of guys coming in and taking advantage of maybe some time off work or staying at home for a couple weeks. The average guy uh, goes through two to three weeks of treatment um, to fix the ED, get uh, get rid of the medication. There's an end date to this. If you're taking the pill... You're probably going to be taking the pill for life. You'll probably take more and more of it. This is a natural and spontaneous fix. It's all about the blood flow, blood flow when it comes to ED, and this treatment addresses the root cause of the problem. So folks can get back to normal. This is not uh, you know, a, a sentence where you're taking something for the rest of your life. This can last and be kind of like it was. It can, yeah. One of the studies, uh, wasatchmedicalclinic.com on the science page I believe it was 36 months after getting treatment, they went back to all these guys and said, okay, you know how the treatment's working? It's been 36 months. Some guys had probably gained weight, lost weight. You know, their health changes. 92% said it was still working. And that's pretty phenomenal. This is a long-lasting fix, many years, um, natural and normal spontaneity in the bedroom, like you said, Jake. It's not artificial it's the only thing that can probably restore the younger years. Wow, restore those younger years. And uh, you guys are taking appointments, and folks can come in see if the, the doctor says this is the right treatment for you, right? Yeah, we're doing a lot for free right now to make sure you're a good candidate um, and to get you all the information you need. That would be an assessment with a medical doctor, uh, ultrasound. He's going to do an exam of you, an analysis of your medical history, 
Uh, we're not going to be, do, uh, be able to do this one forever, but we are giving you a special gift that produces instant results in the bedroom either way just for coming in. So give us a call if you'd like more information. 801-901-8000 is the number to call. 801-901-8000. Andrew, thank you so very much as always. Thank you, guys. There you go. Andrew Reinhardt from Wasatch Medical Clinic. 801-901-8000. 801-901-8000. Adam Keefe, the former jazz man, joins the show coming up next. 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.